This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everybody, good evening. This is the Wild Ginger Running live show here on YouTube at 6.30pm on Wednesday night and tonight I am thrilled to introduce to you the author of The Athlete's Gut, Patrick Wilson. Hi Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. The weather here in the States where I live has kind of been like a typical English type of week where it's pretty much been 50-60% chance of rain every day with not a lot of sun so... Uh, weather's not the best, but yeah, I'm doing I'm doing well otherwise. Good. Um, and is the COVID situation still affecting you guys over there, like in your in your state? Yeah, this it's interesting in that the states are kind of on different trajectories in terms of how open they are. I'm in the state of Virginia, so it's kind of I think in Virginia we're in the middle of the phases of reopening. The university where I work is still kind of closed for the most part, with plans to reopen. Um, kind of getting put into place. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag depending on where you are in the States. So, yeah. Yeah, but hopefully slowly coming out of it like we are in the UK as well. And people are starting to think about races ahead and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's fantastic that you can join us tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, sure. as, as, uh, I'll read out a couple of names on the live chat so you know a couple of people who are watching just now. So Philip Haddock says, hello. I'm really looking forward to this as lockdown has made him fat. <laughs> um, Hannah I don't Bas to that. <laughs> yeah, Hannah Basie says hi and Sharon Houston says hi as well. So um, fantastic to have everybody watching. Um, so uh, you You've written this amazing book, um, which I've been sent. Um, I've been um, reading through it and reading specific chapters and just like looking at things that I've personally been interested in. And we have got some really good questions from patrons tonight, uh, which I'll go through. Um, but the first question I wanted to just ask you um, is something that the Science of Ultra podcast um, apparently asked you, um, first of all. Um, and that is, why do we even get these gut problems when we do these do runs? Like, what is even happening there? Yeah. You know, I think a big part of it is just physical exercise is a big challenge to the human body. I mean, you kind of think of what you're asking your body to do, especially during really prolonged stuff like ultras. And it's an extreme situation that is not conducive to digesting and breaking down nutrients that you're eating. So one of the main things that happens when you engage in intense exercise is blood flow is going to be redistributed away from your gut to your working muscle, and that makes sense because you want to provide your working muscles with the energy, the oxygen, um, and the other nutrients that it needs to work. And then in hot environments, a chunk of your blood is also going to go to the skin for cooling and then for sweating. So the gut isn't really the priority, especially during intense exercise. Now when we talk about ultras, think about compounding that 
where you're going for, you know, 12, 15, 24 hours for a single stage race and then longer in, in some cases when you're doing multi-stage races. And what happens, especially the most, I think, troublesome symptom for most ultra runners is nausea. And there's just a whole bunch of stuff that gets secreted into your blood uh, that can cause this area in your brain to be triggered that causes nausea. So examples would be like stress hormones, uh, arginine vasopressin is a fluid-conserving hormone that can do it, muscle breakdown products. So it's kind of like this soup of stuff in your blood that may um, explain why it's so common to have nausea during ultras. I mean, in some studies, you see like 60% of runners reporting some level of nausea. Now, it's not all severe, but um, you've got a subset of those 60% that do have like really severe issues. So yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, your body is not prioritizing digestion for the most part when you're physically working, but when you're running for 12 to 24 hours, you have to eat something to finish the race. So it's a, it's an interesting challenge for the human body to balance all those sort of tasks, especially in, in an ultra environment. Yeah, it definitely is. That's interesting that 60% of people have had or reported those nausea feelings. And and in your book, there's a, there's a section on um, actually training the gut, um, which I think is really interesting because I'm not, we train our bodies physically, don't we? But we don't pay much attention to necessarily training the gut. So um, yeah. can you just talk a little bit around that and, and what you what you mean by that and how people can do it? Yeah. So people you know, right, the purpose of training in terms of your running, your cycling, your swimming, whatever it is, is to make you stronger, faster, your heart more efficient. We, you know, we, we don't oftentimes think of the gut as a real trainable organ. What in fact it is malleable, it does change based on the inputs, the things you're putting into it. I mean, the best example of that from just real life is kind of speed eating contests where, you know, these people train themselves to eat dozens and dozens of hot dogs or whatever else in 10 minutes. I mean, clearly they weren't, you know, born ready to do that. They had to build up that tolerance over time. So, I mean, just based on that, we know that the gut is trainable, but there are more maybe specific changes that can occur through dietary manipulations. Okay, For example, if your goal during an ultra is to consume a, a pretty large amount of carbohydrate at a relatively high rate, then the diet you're eating preceding that ultra should be rich in carbohydrate because it can help facilitate the digestion and absorption of those carbs. So for example, eating more carbohydrates or sugar in your diet would actually speed emptying of those carbs from your stomach, which is something you probably want to happen during an ultra is to empty that stuff from your stomach um, at a steady rate. In the intestine, there's little transporters that help absorb the carbohydrate that can get sort of upregulated or increased in, in numbers. So those are a couple of examples. Um, another way is just to do it perceptually, getting used to having stuff in your stomach when you're running. I mean, it's it's not a pleasant feeling for a lot of people, especially if you have a larger amount of food in there. So getting yourself accustomed to that um, is going to be helpful, you know, come race day or even during your longer training runs. When you try to feel, you're not going to be so surprised by how um, full you feel or you're not going to be as bothered by those symptoms. So it's a, it's a term that's been around in the sports science literature for uh, maybe 10, five years, talking about training the gut as a, a way to uh, get the body ready for feeling during actual competition. Mm, that's really interesting. I, I didn't think of it as you should eat what you're going to eat on your race beforehand. I usually, to get the food for a race, I usually go down the aisle of the supermarket that I never go down before. Like, um, you know, all the biscuits, all the chocolates, all the sweets. I ban myself from going down there normally. And then before an ultra, I'll just pick all of those things from the shelf. So it's interesting that you say that it's good to have a little bit of those things in your diet to sort of let your stomach get used to it just on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And I would say that a good example of practical applications, like for I know a lot of ultra runners will try something like a high, higher fat, lower carb diet. And that's fine. There's some evidence that it could be at least as good as a high carb diet and even better for more of the really long stuff. But if you're going to follow that diet uh, and then proceed to try and consume a, quite a bit of carbohydrate during the race, it's going to make it more difficult to empty that stuff from your stomach and then to actually absorb it. So what you might want to do is follow a high fat diet if that's what you're choosing to do. And then for a couple of days before the race, at least switch to a higher carbohydrate plan 
because you will still maintain some of the fat burning, but then hopefully you'll get some of the digestive benefits of at least increasing the carbohydrate in the days before you are going to be competing for those athletes who think they're going to be consuming a fair amount of carbohydrate during, you know, the event itself. That's really interesting because I've, I've got on my list to ask you about fat adaptation and high fat, low carb diets in ultra running because it's it's definitely, it was a buzzword definitely like a couple of years ago at least. Um, and I was later on going to ask you about that. So I'll just ask you now. <laughs> like, sure. um, so yeah, I've, I have heard that you, that there's various nutritionists that I've talked to that have said, um, no, you just need carbs. Like don't cut out carbs. You, you need carbs. Just have, don't have loads of carbs. Don't have loads of processed carbs, but you need carbs. Um, don't have processed carbs unless you're doing a race. So where do you sit on the whole ultra runners should try to follow a high fat, low carb diet? Is it beneficial in terms of performance? Um, what would you it's, suggest? Yeah, it's a really tough question to answer in terms of like exactly what situations it would be potentially helpful for, at least as good as a high carb diet. And I think the major take home is the longer the race gets, the more plausible it is that a high fat diet could theoretically be uh, an option for an athlete to try that's as good or maybe in some cases could be better than a high-carb diet. Because basically, when you're doing anything more than five, six hours, you just naturally can't sustain a high exercise intensity as a percentage of like your VO2 max for that long. I mean, if you look at studies that track the relative intensity that most ultra runners are uh, uh, sort of running at during a race, it's maybe like 40 to 60% of their VO2 max, yeah. which is kind they're of a... They're just walking. <laughs> like they're doing yeah, a lot of hiking, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, and even, but even the good runners, I mean, they're still not probably going much above 60% of their VO2 max for the super long stuff. And at those intensities, your body generally burns a fair amount of fat anyways. So carbohydrate becomes increasingly important for events in my mind, that lasts maybe like 30 minutes up to a few hours. So those are the ones where you probably don't want to go with a high-fat diet if performance is your priority. If you want to just finish the race, it probably doesn't matter so much, whatever you prefer to do. But for a high-level athlete who wants to finish fast, you know, there's a number of studies that have pretty clearly shown a high-carbohydrate diet tends to be advantageous for those durations. Now, as you get past a few hours, the studies are less um, available because you think, you know, how do you recruit people for a study where they run on a treadmill for five hours after following a diet for a week and then they have to switch to another diet and then run on the treadmill again for another five hours? It's hard to do those studies, so we don't have a lot of them, and most of them are done with only a few number, a, a few people uh, per study. But the ones that we do have show that higher fat diets are about as equivalent maybe in some cases a little bit better than a high-carb diet for these really prolonged stuff. It's by no means clear, uh, but I, I, if someone tells you a high-carb diet is going to be bad for performance in an ultra, I don't think there's necessarily evidence to support that either because um, the studies we do have, they seem pretty equi equivalent in terms of average performance between the two conditions. So, um, yeah, I, I think in terms of gut issues, a high-fat diet theoretically could be applied for an athlete who's trying to eat a lot of carb during the race and for whatever reason, even after gut training, they can't handle it. I know some athletes will turn to a higher fat approach because what that would allow you to do is just eat less fuel during the race itself to begin with, which would potentially reduce your risk of issues. That's theoretical. It hasn't been shown in studies that that's actually true, but I know ultra runners do advocate, some of them do advocate for that approach. Mm, that's really interesting. So that's kind of like anything for trail runners, maybe over the half marathon distance, because a half marathon could take, you know, the average road runner would take like two hours on that. But trail running with the hills and terrain and stuff like that, it could yeah. take three hours. So after that, like into the marathon, and then obviously into the ultra running, it could be um, a workable option. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it comes largely down to I think personal preference. Um, some athletes prefer to eat a higher fat diet. And the other thing is, if you're eating a lower carb, a higher fat diet, one of the other byproducts can be people lose weight because there's fewer foods to kind of choose from on those diets. So if you're a little bit overweight, or if you have a little bit more body fat than what would be optimal for performance, sometimes people improve on a low carb, high fat diet just simply because they lose some weight. Mm. So that's another aspect to kind of consider. But if you kind of standardize the diet so that people maintain their weight, then high fat versus 
high carb are fairly equivalent for the ultra stuff, at least based on the studies that we have. Mm -hmm. Shorter stuff, it seems like a higher carbohydrate diet is superior. Ah, okay, okay, that's that makes sense, and that's really useful. Thank you for that, and I feel much more elucidated about that now. Sure. <laughs> and, and I just want to bring in Paul Jones from the live chat, who says, "I've been getting my stomach used to eating biscuits during lockdown. Does that count as ultra training?" <laughs> sure. I mean, I would say a good rule of thumb, and you hear this from all nutritionists and dietitians, is just make sure you're accustomed to what you're going to be eating on race day. If we're talking about like performance nutrition. It shouldn't be, you know, something you experiment with on that day. I mean, ideally, you're choosing stuff that you've already tried. And now if you're, like, at an aid station late in the race and there's nothing there that you've tried, then you kind of have to roll the dice. But um, ideally, you're picking stuff that you're accustomed to. So if you've been eating biscuits throughout lockdown, then, uh, you know, that's a viable option for you going into races when they end up resuming. Yeah, and make sure they're the same type of biscuit, Paul, because you don't want to be making anything different. <laughs> right, you don't want to be spoiled. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so um, I want to go now to our first uh, patron question here from Chloe Mason. Um, she would like to know from you, Patrick, um, what your ideas for the best breakfast for um, uh, when you're going to do a race in the morning. Um, sure. She's she's kind of querying like pre-race carb loading as well. Like, are, are there any yeah. do's and don'ts to the pre-race kind of nutrition? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because uh, it varies a lot depending on when the race starts. You know how long the race is. So there's not like a this is the best breakfast across any situation. But I would say is if it's again a shorter race, and I mean shorter is maybe up to a few hours, and you think carbohydrate is going to be beneficial for those events and you're going to be kind of pushing it and trying to finish fast. Then over the couple of days beforehand, I would focus on eating a high-carbohydrate diet, tapering your training appropriately, and then your muscle carbohydrate store should be kind of filled up by doing that over the couple of days beforehand. And on the breakfast, really what you're worried about there is just kind of topping off your liver stores of carbohydrate because those can be depleted after sleeping overnight. So you don't need to probably go crazy with the amount. Um, you know, it might be something like one or two grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of your body mass or something like that. It may need to be in a liquid form if it's really close to the race because you may not be able to tolerate something solid if it's, you know, an hour and a half beforehand. Especially if somebody's nervous or anxious, you know, it, it becomes, again, complicated to just give a straight recommendation about this is the food or product you should use. But in general, trying to minimize the amount of um, fiber, uh, fat, solid protein to a reasonable amount. I'm not saying completely avoid them, but maybe limiting to no, than, no more than like 10 grams each. Because those things tend to sit in the stomach a little bit longer, and you probably don't want food sitting in the stomach, especially if you're going to be ingesting fluid and carbohydrate during the race itself. So yeah, it's one that it's hard to give like a specific, this is the right food or meal. Um, it's again, something you should trial out beforehand in your training. But those are some general recommendations I would make about uh, the types of macronutrients and things you should pay attention to. Mm. So I, I tend to have porridge or like something like that, like with a banana and maybe some peanut butter and like some raisins and stuff like that. I kind of feel like that covers all bases. Yeah. And if it's hot, I have it just with cold milk. And if it's a cold day, then, you know, it's nice to warm up the banana and stuff. Um, but like, is it better to have like, say, porridge or like a couple of pieces of toast, like with the butter and jam on? Um, or does it not, not really matter? It's so. This is the thing about the GI issues is they're so individual. I mean, you can see studies that try and compare different interventions or approaches. Uh, sometimes you see some differences between the groups, but if you look at the actual individual responses in some of these studies, they're just really varied. So one person may respond well to porridge and banana, another person may not find that to be as tolerable. So yeah, it, it honestly becomes really problematic to say this is the food that's better. It has to be something you trial figure out for yourself that it doesn't cause you problems. But as rules of thumb, if you're trying to finish fast, you probably want to prioritize carbohydrates because that's the fuel your body is going to be using when you're exercising at a high intensity. And then um, don't overdo it on fat, protein, uh, and fiber because those things can sit in your stomach a little bit longer. Mm. Now, if it's like four hours before you race, I'm not so worried about fat, fiber, and protein. But if it's two hours or an hour, then yes, that's something you – want to take more of a close look at. 
that's a really good advice and I hope that helps you Chloe because um, that is a great question there so thank you very much for that one um, and thanks for the great answer there Patrick that's great sure. um, um, we've got a question from Philip Haddock now about carbs and protein <laughs> I'm just leading on from that um, and he he wants to know um, how many how much carbs and protein should the average male be having per day and we should probably extend that to the average female as well for um, the other 50% okay. of our listeners so you know it's kind of different when you talk about just the average person in the population versus someone who's an average like recreational runner so I guess I'll gear my answer more towards runners, um, and if you want me to elaborate on the other part of it, I can. But for someone who's you know training, they're not like necessarily an elite athlete, but they're doing a fair amount of training, it's pretty much gonna depend on the volume and, of, and intensity of what you're doing. So on a day where you're doing something like a 30 minute easy run, um, you know the average person might consume something like three or four or five grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of their body mass. So for someone my size, that would probably be you know, 240 to 300 grams of carbohydrate in a day. Protein, protein needs like carbohydrate go up with training volume and intensity. So on an easy day, um, you know, it might be something like you should get at least maybe 1.2 grams per kilogram of body mass. For someone my size, that would be I think about 90 grams total spread across the day. You don't want to eat it all at once like at dinner. You should have relatively equal amounts maybe four times throughout the day because that'll help um, basically turn on the, the, the light switch for making muscle protein. You want to do it every four or five hours. Now with heavy volume, like if you're going through a period of time where you're training multiple hours a day and it's relatively intense, the carb may need to go up in some cases to like five to ten grams per kilogram of body mass. Protein is probably going to go up closer to 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram of body mass. So for me, you know, that might be something like 120 to 150 grams of protein in an entire day. Um, those are just ranges. You know, they're, it's not like, you know, they're, uh, we're able to delineate between 1.5 and 1.7 and say that that's better. It's, you know, you kind of want to fall in those ranges. Uh, and we know based on a cumulative amount of studies that those are some pretty good targets to make with respect to people who are actual kind of athletes, whether they be higher level or on the recreational side. I've never ever like looked at my carbohydrate intake and kind of measured it like that. I, um, I, I suppose you'd have to do that a few times, wouldn't you, to then judge what 100 grams yeah. of carbs looks like um, from what products and then uh, yeah. what 100 grams of protein looks like. Um, yeah. But I just tend to eat if I'm hungry and then make sure I've got, you know, like a bit of everything on my plate. Do, do you yeah. think that's good enough? Like, or should we I be measuring stuff? I think for a lot stuff? of people who are not, you know, again, if, if, if high level performance is not your priority, you just want to enjoy what you're doing. You want to feel reasonably well when you're running. Then, yeah, I think in many cases you can kind of look at your plate and do a little bit of an eyeball thing and, and kind of see that maybe something like a quarter of your plate is a good source of protein maybe um, half to two-thirds is something like uh, healthy carbohydrates, fruits and vegetables, that sort of thing. Uh, and then you're also maybe including some good sources of fat. Uh, so it, it depends a lot on your commitment to the sport in terms of how concerned you are about performance. Higher-level athletes, it can be sometimes problematic to get enough of these things in their diet and make sure they're hitting those targets without doing some sort of more formal assessment. So it depends on the person. It's not necessary for everybody to do that, but it, you know, I don't see any harm in you know once a month tracking your diet on a day and seeing kind of how close you are to some of those numbers to at least, at least um, give you some information to work off to say, hey, maybe I need to bump up the serving size of my protein-based foods because I'm a little bit under the target, even though you're not going to be actually recording all those numbers every single day. Yeah, and like I think for me definitely, and maybe a lot of people are like this too, like there's a, a definite emphasis on carbs because that's really easy, like rice, potato, pasta, whatever, that's mm -hmm. really easy to make. And then the vegetables, you know, you haven't sometimes got all the fresh vegetables in your fridge and, you know, sometimes it's annoying to have to chop them up and cook them so you just make frozen yeah. peas so you don't have as many of the fresh vegetables as you probably should have. Um, so that's really useful. Useful, that kind of idea of that plate that you've just given us there so that's that's really useful thank you for that yeah 
and I don't do a whole lot of like nutrition counseling anymore because most of my time is teaching and research. But when I was doing counseling, what I would typically, and this is a recommendation to maybe work with a nutritionist or dietitian, is I would kind of figure out how much energy an athlete was burning, kind of come up with some of these protein and carbohydrate targets myself, and then basically make plates for them um, that had images to show them, okay, on this type of training day, this is the relative amount of you know grains, fruits, milk, protein-based food you should eat on this type of training day per meal. So you know I don't want everybody to be, you know, weighing every single thing that they eat because I think that's sometimes a road to not great things happening if you're always tracking everything and always concerned about every little gram. Um, but doing it periodically, I think, is a good assessment thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's really, really useful. Um, yeah, so thank you for that. Um, and now we have um, a kind of the opposite question here. Um, John Airy, who I know is watching on the live chat um, just now, so he's going to be excited for this question to be answered. Um, he says, hunger is my problem. Um, does anyone else find that after three hours of exercise, they are famished? I find flapjack works well, but it's hard to find. Um, one very kind lady let me have some during the London Marathon in 2017. So I'm presuming like this is like he's done a marathon and there is no flapjack at the tables. Um, maybe he has to start carrying it with him. Um, yeah. So yeah. What do you reckon about that? That after three hours of exercise, he's just really famished. Yeah. I mean, you do hear that from also like ultra runners during longer events that some of them, you know, actually have reductions in hunger and then some of them have kind of hunger that goes off the charts. So there's a lot of variability there. And uh, to me, if you're feeling really hungry, perhaps it could be a sign that you're underfeeling, or maybe you didn't eat enough in the days leading up uh, to competition. That's a potential. I'm not saying that that's an absolute, but that is something to consider. Now, is there like a food choice that is best at dealing with hunger at that point? Um, no, there's not a product that I would say that is one better than the other. You again have to kind of take a trial and error approach. Uh, but it's interesting. I think there's some potential that if you're really hungry, uh, that that perhaps has some implications for performance. So I would, again, take a look at the feeling that precedes that, both during the race, but also before the race. Are you eating enough carbohydrates? Are you eating enough total food in general? Uh, perhaps, you know, that individual could be, you know, having a little bit of hypoglycemia. It's hard to say, uh, but that is a, a thing to take a look at. Yeah, and, and like maybe instead of leaving it till three hours of exercise, maybe he should start eating earlier. Like he should take a bit of flapjack with him um, and then like have it halfway around. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at with the, you know, looking at the feeling beforehand and maybe he's eating some amount of, of stuff before that, but maybe uh, he needs to take a look at it, at least doing more before the race itself or trying to up it gradually during his training, not immediately throwing on top like two or three gels more an hour, but gradually increasing the amount to see if that helps deal with the problem. Mm. Um, John Airy says thanks very much for answering his question. And also, sure. he says um, that he also should admit that he hadn't trained that well uh, on that specific event. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I'm not sure how much that has to do with hunger, but yeah, it, it's uh, you know got multiple things to take a look at. So that's. Like good areas for improvement. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, he's really pleased that you answered that question. So that's really that's really awesome. Thank you. Um, and Philip Haddock is actually watching live as well, and you answered his question the first one, and he says thanks, thanks for that. It really, really helps him. No problem. Fantastic. Okay, so um, the next question we have is from Arlene Maitlock, um, who, uh, oh, this is kind of recapping um, what we were just talking about earlier about the gut problems, but she says um, she wants some examples of what kinds of food to eat or drink when even the thought of food makes your stomach queasy. Have you got any recommendations? So that's a tough one. I mean, I, nausea, again, is especially for ultra runners, is really problematic. And my recommendation to start would be to try and figure out if there's something underlying that nausea that you can deal with to prevent it. That may not be possible. It may just be something that uh, you have to deal with. But there are some things that can trigger nausea. So examples uh, would be things like stress and anxiety. If you're the type of runner who is really anxious before races, uh, that's something that you may need to want to try and address because it could help dampen down or reduce the severity of nausea that you get or delay it so that it doesn't happen until later in the race. Um, other things could be you're not drinking enough fluid. Dehydration can cause it. 
uh, if you're not accustomed to exercising in the heat, if you haven't really acclimated to the heat, uh, we know that heat stress is a big cause of GI symptoms, including nausea. So in the book, you know, The Athlete's Gut, I kind of go through each of these symptoms. For the nausea section, it's, I don't know how many pages, it's multiple pages. But I try and out outline all the potential causes. So my first recommendation would be to try and figure out if there is something you can identify to change. Yep. <laughs> now, if that doesn't work, if you can't figure something out, if you try these other things and it doesn't work, food-wise, you know, ginger's been used for, you know, centuries as a anti-nausea remedy. So, you know, Eastern sailors would take it with them going on long voyages on the sea to try and prevent nausea. It also has some pretty good evidence in other situations like morning sickness, motion sickness, chemotherapy-induced nausea. Now, does it work for exercise-induced nausea? We don't really have a whole lot of studies saying that it does for sure, but it is something that is you know, potentially um, uh, something you could try. Now, how would you implement it? You probably want to do like a gram or two, uh, maybe an hour or two before the race. If it's a longer race, you could try taking it um, in the middle of the race. My big caution here would obviously be um, it can cause some other side effects. So too much ginger can cause like mild stomach irritation. So just be aware of that. If you take like five grams at once, it's probably not going to sit too well in your stomach. And then other people, like if you have a bleeding disorder or clotting disorder, it can in impact blood clotting. So you want to make sure that if you're going to use ginger in any sort of therapeutic manner, you want to talk to your, you know, healthcare provider about that before making a decision to do that. Uh, so that's, you know, one option. If none of those things work, you could talk to your doctor about uh, over the, excuse me, prescription medications that are sometimes used by ultra runners like uh, Ondansetron is one that is commonly used. I think Zofran is the brand name. Um, I think that's a last resort. I, don't, I wouldn't go there first, but if it's something you really can't get on top of, uh, you could talk to a sports medicine physician to see if they think it's worthwhile to try something like that. I would recommend the first thing that people do if they're experiencing the nausea is to buy this book and read the nausea section. <laughs> try all the things in it that Patrick has very kindly written in there because um, it, it really is very comprehensive. Um, we just had Amanda join us and she says, just arrived, that book looks enormous. Um, it's not enormous, it's, um, it's just a very comprehensive guide to what's going on in your gut and how best you can um, improve your performance um, and, and not feel sick whilst doing any sport really, not just running. So, um, so yeah. When I started writing it, I was worried I was going to not be able to have enough material for a book, and then I realized <laughs> that I needed. A, they, the publisher told me I needed a cut back. So. That's a reduced version of what the book could have been. So. Yeah, there's just so much, isn't there? And there's a really nice section. I really like the, the section at the back, which has got all like different dietary problems in there. You know, like Crohn's disease and um, uh, gluten-free and celiac. Because mm -hmm. my husband's a celiac, so we, I, that's the first bit that I read. Um, and it's just it's really good if you've got any kind of problem. It will be in this book. So um, yeah, really recommend it. And I'm going to be referring to it a lot um, over the coming years. I know for sure. Um, and um, just got some more question here. Oh, Rich Simpson, I think we've answered his question. He says when he first started doing ultras, he got his nutritional wrong, ended up being ill. Um, it was a really hot day and he couldn't even keep water down and he was really scared. Um, is there a fix when on the hill? Um, but he says it just answered it <laughs> with the ginger thing. Yeah, I mean, heat stress is a really big issue. And I think acclimatizing to the heat is the number one approach to deal with those issues. Uh, and then at that point, you know, it can be looking at your hydration, doing too little and also doing too much can do it. So you want to kind of be in the middle of the road uh, in kind of a Goldilocks zone of getting the right amount. Yeah. So just like, would you recommend just drinking like little sips throughout the day um, and not, not letting yourself get too thirsty? In terms of day-to-day -day hydration, I think, you know, that approach is fine. I think, um, most people do a reasonably good job at staying relatively hydrated on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, going into a race or training, you know, you might just make sure to consume like a 16-ounce glass of water four hours beforehand just to make sure that you've got enough fluid in you. I mean, if it's if it's extra that you don't need, for the most part, you're just going to pee it out. So it's not going to harm you. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't go crazy with chugging water beforehand. Because um, that can increase the risk of hyponatremia, basically low blood sodium, which is an issue that some uh, runners and ultra runners can encounter during longer races. So over drinking is not good as well uh, during exercise. You want to kind of be in the middle of the road, not 
too little, not too much. Mm. Yeah, so take note of what colour your pea is, and it should be that light straw colour, am I right? You can use that as a, I would say, day-to-day -day hydration. You can use that as one of several indicators. What I would recommend is combining looking at your urine color, measuring your body mass in the morning to see if it's fluctuating a lot from day to day. So if you're like, you know, uh, one and a half pounds or a pound below your normal mass from the day before, that could be a sign that you didn't drink enough fluid. Uh, and then other than that, thirst. You know, perceptual thirst is actually a pretty good indicator. So if you were thirsty, your urine is dark and low volume, and you've lost weight from the day beforehand, that's a fairly large amount, that is a really good sign that you're probably under drinking. So combining a few measures can be a good way to better get a better uh, sense of it because each of those indicators can have some slight flaws in them. Yeah, yeah, okay, so combination of markers there, that's really good advice. Um, great, and then obviously if we're drinking a lot during the race now, we've got some questions on going to the loo. Um, so John Gardner yeah. says um, that he wants to, we all want to avoid loo stops during a race. Um, uh, oh, I think this is about eating and loo stops. He says, does, does it mean eating less 24 hours a, a, in advance? Like, is that what you can do to um, avoid going to the loo during a race? Um, we, we've got loads of people asking this question, actually. Yeah. Colin Clark also wants to know how to make, avoid making your more right. to the toilet. And Guy Greaterex says equally, um, when he goes for a run at a certain time, he quite often feels like he needs to go for a number two but any other time he's 100% okay and he just wonders why this is. Um, so yeah, go, number two yeah, there, and running. There's a reason like, they call it the runner's trots, right? I mean, there's a whole name for it. I mean, it's so common. So this is such a ubiquitous experience for runners that you know we know that that's something that they want to know about. So much like the nausea thing, it can come from multiple sources. So there's not like a one-size-fits-all, but I can go through some of the things that are, are potential um, – considerations when trying to figure out what could be causing some of your issues. So pre-race nutrition, what I would say is, again, if you're going to try and eat a fair amount of carbohydrate, if that's your goal, then you can up the amount, uh, maybe starting three days beforehand, um, eat that higher amount for a couple of days, and then the day before the race, you could really taper it back. Because for the most part, as long as you're resting, as long as you're not training heavily the day before the race, your muscle carbohydrate stores are going to be basically topped off. And the only thing you really need to worry about is your liver, and you don't really need a whole lot of carbohydrate to top off your liver stores. So you can kind of taper back the amount the day beforehand so long as you're uh, resting and you're not doing anything crazy with your training. Beyond that, you could also dramatically reduce the fiber amount. That is really the biggest driver of fecal or stool mass that you put out on a daily basis is probably the amount of fiber that you consume. So, you know, I definitely recommend consuming a good amount of fiber in your normal diet, but starting maybe a couple days beforehand, you could really taper it back if that's an issue that you experience during longer competitions or training sessions is the urge to have to stop to use the, uh, the, the loo. Uh, so beyond that, it could be, again, stress and anxiety. Um, stress and anxiety tends to plug up things at the top, so you get bloating, fullness, nausea, and then loosen stuff up at the bottom. So dual uh, effects that aren't pleasant for most people. So if you are one of those anxious racers, maybe working on some psychological things on race morning to help dampen down some of that anxiety that you experience. It could be things like slow, deep breathing, mindfulness, or I think a couple ones that are pretty easy for most people to try and implement. And then, you know, there's other things like overfueling, like you're just consuming too much carbohydrate or not the right type. It's not getting absorbed. So there's a whole bunch of other little things you can take a look at, but I guess those would be three basic things I would start with is reduce the fiber amount, uh, taper the carbohydrate the day beforehand, and then if you're the stress or anxious type person, trying to get a handle on that. Yeah. And I think one of your uh, uh, listeners asked about the timing thing. Yeah. I'll briefly mention that, that there is a day-to-day -day variation in the gastrointestinal system function. You know, most people kind of know that during the day the gut is more active and then when you sleep overnight it's less active. So for most people, urges to use the bathroom are, are probably more prominent in the morning and that's just natural um, sort of day-to-day -day, uh, experiences. And the other thing that can trigger it is, is eating something. So when you wake up in the morning and you eat a, a breakfast, 
once that food gets in your stomach and your small intestine, your nervous system relays back to your large intestine and says, hey, we got to make room for this other food that's coming down the track, so time to get rid of what's, what's in the large intestine. It's basically a reflex in the gut. So that's something I talk about in the book is, is a normal response to eating is maybe 30 to 60 minutes later, you feel like you have to use the bathroom, and that's, that's normal. It's not something to be worried about, but maybe just something to be aware of when it comes to timing your food intake before a run. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, um, Guy, who um, Guy, he's called Guy, he said that. Um, he says it's kind of 4 to 6 p.m. Um, that he needs to go, um, but any other time of day it's okay. So, yeah, just just for him that is the time, and, and like, yeah. I hope he doesn't have a race at that time. <laughs> I suppose the other things to consider is like caffeine can also do it. So if he was taking caffeine around that time of day, maybe back off on that. I mean, there can be some other things in the diet can more specifically trigger kind of large intestine or colon, we call it motility, just kind of activity in the colon. Uh, and caffeine is definitely one that can do it. So I'm trying to think of other things at that time that would be a trigger. Um, but that's about all I can think of at this point. Yeah. That's, yeah, well, yeah, that's really good advice. Less fiber, less caffeine, and then maybe not. But maybe that's, you know, just the time that your body is set up to do these kind of things. So um, just work with your body maybe and just work around it. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we've got a final question here um, from uh, Nadia Federman, who I think is also listening. Um, she asked a question about flapjacks just earlier as well. She wanted to know if, if they were an actual brand or whether they're just an OT thing. They're just an OT thing, Nadia. Um, flapjack um, is like a, a recipe. It's like a OT thing stuck together with like syrup and honey and stuff, and lots of different brands make them. Um, so is that a UK thing? Uh, flapjack. Yeah. yeah. Oh, do you not have flapjacks in the USA? I don't. Uh, I've never really heard of it used that way. Yeah. When I hear flapjack, I just think of pancakes. That's all I think pancakes. of. Pancakes. What, yeah. like, I think of pancakes as those, like, fluffy round things in a pan. Yeah. Oh, no, flapjack is, like, um, it's a it's a bar of, like, that big or this big, and it's always square, um, and yeah. it's oats stuck together with, like, basically a load of fat and sugar, so butter gotcha. and, and honey or, or sugar or syrup or something. And then sometimes it has, like, um, granola-y bits in it, like seeds, berries, nuts. Um, you can put anything in it, basically. And sometimes in shops, in service stations, you'll get them, and they've got, like, a Bakewell tart topping or a caramel topping or a chocolate topping on top of them they're just really really nice <laughs> delicious. yeah and you can make them at home as well um so yeah so that's for anyone who's not from the uk and not familiar with flapjacks um so uh, nadia has a question not related to flapjacks um she says uh she wants to know she's got a fructose slash sorbit malabsorption problem i've not heard of sorbit so i don't know what that is um she can't get many of the uk products over here um so she would appreciate ideas for homemade or european or swiss available products um and she wants to know what to look out for in those products um so yes i i'm not really sure what that question is but hopefully you will understand it better than i do okay I think, yeah, referring to fructose, malabsorption, and then sorbitol, I guess, is, my guess is what she was referring to there. So a couple of sugars that in some people in larger amounts, like maybe over, you know, 10, 15, 20 grams at once, they don't get absorbed that well in the gut. So when what happens when the sugars stay in your gut is that they pull water out into the kind of tube because you can kind of think water is attracted to molecules, solutes. So you can get loose stools, and then once the carbohydrate gets into the large intestine where all the bacteria live, they can get fermented, which produces gas. So common symptoms of malabsorption of carbohydrate, whether it's fructose or sorbitol or anything else, is going to be bloating, gas, and loose stools. Um, lactose intolerance is kind of the same thing. So what to take a look at, I guess. Uh, the main issue with fructose is that you want to avoid foods that are sort of high in, in fructose in an isolated way. Like the amount of fructose really outweighs the amount of glucose in a, fluid, in a food. And that's because when you ingest fructose and glucose together, a lot of these fructose malabsorption issues go away. Ingesting some glucose with the fructose helps to absorb the fructose itself. So there's studies that show this, like they'll take people who have fructose malabsorption give them glucose along with the fructose, and it really actually helps to reduce that issue. So a main 
strategy is to avoid, again, foods that have more fructose than glucose. Now, how do you figure that out? It can sometimes be a little bit hard. You might have to use like a nutrient analysis software, a food database. Uh, Monash University in Australia has an app um, that you can download that does um, kind of give you some sense of if a food has too much fructose or sorbitol. So that's one more practical resource somebody could uh, use if they're trying to reduce the amount of sugar, uh, those sugars in their diet. So I, that's kind of a, an overview of the fructose malabsorption issue. Uh, in terms of sorbitol, uh, that one is, uh, I think, a little bit less common in terms of um, hearing runners or ultra runners talk about it, but it's still a potential issue. Uh, and again, that Monash University app that I mentioned, I think, also reports whether or not foods are high, low, or medium in, in sorbitol. So they could potentially look at that app. Mm, that's really useful. And to get the glucose more than the fructose, that's really, that's really useful. So presuming she can't eat like fruit then, because that's mainly going to be fructose. Um... Depends on the type. So some uh, have more fructose than glucose. I think apples, pears uh, have a little bit more fructose than glucose, whereas, for example, grapes, I think it's more equal. I, these are just what I'm trying to remember from um, some of the nutrient analysis stuff that I've done. But they can they can find some of that information from like, in the United States, it would be the United States Department of Agriculture has a database. I'm assuming the UK may have something similar where you can maybe look up some of these things and see what the amount of fructose to glucose is in some of those foods. Mm, very useful. Okay, that's brilliant. I hope that's answered your question, Nadia. Um, and Nadia is here on the live chat and she says thanks. Um, and she also has another question about breakfast, um, having listened okay. to the breakfast advice just earlier, if you've just got time for a couple more questions. Sure. Um, she says, back to breakfast, I hate eating in the morning. Um, are there any tips on actually getting some food down before a race or before the race at a specific time? Yeah, you know, it's, I guess the options are to get up earlier um, so that if you want to eat something more substantial, then you're going to be able to tolerate it without having gut issues during the race itself. Or, you know, you're going to probably just have to switch to something that is more liquid or processed. I know people sometimes shy away from that. But if, if you're nervous, you don't really feel hungry, but your body needs fuel, then that's probably the best approach to go with is um, whether it be something like an Ensure or a Boost sort of carbohydrate protein beverage or anything else that you feel um, that has some appeal to you and gives you some fuel. So, I, yeah, I don't have a this is the best product to use or the best meal to eat, but uh, that's kind of my general take on that. Yeah, that's really useful. I, I think pulverize it and just drink it down. <laughs> um, that's That's been brilliant. So um, I just want to read out some thank yous to you because um, you've been answering everybody's questions tonight and I just want to give you a sense of everybody watching live and just um, and, and just giving uh, giving their thanks to you. Um, so Philip Haddock says thanks, it really helps. Um, John Airy says thanks Patrick as well and um, uh, he also says he has some turmeric on in some high five tablets um, in his water for a long run and that wasn't bad hmm. Hmm. in addition to ginger. Um, uh, great and um, Guy says, great advice, thanks, less fiber, and he always has caffeine as well at that time, so that was really great advice. Um, John Gardner says, very good advice, thanks. Um, Rich Simpson says, salivating, now we're talking flapjacks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, and Nadia Federman, obviously, I just read that one out, she says thanks as well, so thank you so much. Um, that, cool. is, that is really great. Um, and. Uh, we haven't got any more questions, but um, is there anything that you just get asked by runners all the time, um, having um, done various interviews about your book and, and launching the book and talking to runners? Um, have we covered what runners mainly ask you, or is there any other things that they, they generally ask you? You know, I think one thing I like to tell people is that, you know, sometimes they'll ask, you know, how do I figure out my gut? Like, what do, what do I do to eliminate gut issues? And what I try and do in the book and what I tell people is that it's oftentimes useful to take like a symptom-by-symptom symptom approach. So there are different things that can cause different symptoms. So if you want to fix nausea, for example, it may require a different approach than fixing cramping or urges to go to the loo or bloating. They have different origins. So you can't kind of use a one-size-fits-all approach, and you may need to take more of a 
symptom by symptom strategy to get a handle on some of these things. So uh, that's in part why I wrote the book is because sometimes gut issues get lumped into one category and they can be really different things depending on the person, depending on the situation. So I don't know if that's useful advice, but it's just a reminder that it can be pretty com uh, complicated and complex. So uh, you need to, in some cases, take uh, a more uh, close look at some of these things. Mm. And I like how you've divided the book into the different sections. So if you're experiencing, you know, like one of the symptoms that you're just talking about there, you can just dip in, like you don't have to just sit down and read the whole thing. You just dip in, you get the advice from there, you read a bit around it, and then you feel more informed. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was really well put together. And I really like your sense of humor as well. It's just, it's, it's, it's just nice. It's not dry, the book. It's, it's a yeah. very entertaining read as well. So I think um, I really recommend this. Um, and we have someone on the live chat that's already bought it. He says, um, oh, cool. Narrowboat Longpod said, I bought the book on Kindle last week. So looking forward to reading it. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, so I will put a link to the book in the notes in the film description below and I'll turn it into a podcast tomorrow as well and I'll be putting it in the show notes as well there. Um, so if you want to buy Patrick Wilson's book, The Athlete's Gut, it is available now in all good bookstores and I'll put a link up um, tomorrow as well. Um, so I'd just like to say thank you so much, Patrick, for spending time with us tonight. Um, it's morning for you, um, but it's been really great to chat to you and um, I yeah. hope that people have found some really interesting um, just pieces of advice and information and feel a bit more informed about um, what's going on down there and how they can have a bit of a more comfortable um, time if they're running and improve their yeah. performance if they want to. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I, you know, it's enjoyable to talk to runners and hear their questions and try and answer them the best I can. Uh, so, you know, runners are an interesting, interesting group and um, I love talking with them and they always have very interesting questions. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time here tonight, Patrick. Um, yep. And um, I will recommend the book um, Forever After. Cool. Sounds good. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.